What is true of Christmas that you wish was true of the world? In other words, what happens at Christmas that you wish happened all over the world? The premise of the series, this Advent, is simply this. If Christmas did not exist, we would need to invent it. When you think of all that is wrong and all that you want to be right with the world, we would need to invent Christmas because more than any other holiday, Christmas embodies the world we all wish we lived in. It is a world of justice and peace. There is compassion, generosity. People are nice, except in Walmart on Black Friday. <laughs> but after that, uh, they give beyond their means. They come together, families I mean. They support one another and they protect one another. The, the weak, the poor, the vulnerable among us are taken care of by those who have more. There is a pause in the middle of our frenetic activity Christmas Eve. It's run, run, run. Everybody stop. Christmas Eve. You see it? So much of what we wish was true of the world has been packed into a single holiday, Christmas. And so the church, I think, and this is a mistake, keep trying to insist to a world that has become more and more secular that, no, no, the real meaning of Christmas is Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. And we're right about that. But the trouble is the culture is becoming less and less interested in Jesus and yet more and more interested in Christmas. Now, why is that? And I think you're quiet this morning. You are, are you there? I think it's because the message of Christmas, uh, the DNA of Christmas is the message of the kingdom of God. And that message has been stamped indelibly in every living soul. Society is incurably religious, whether they like it or not. And their religion and their beliefs come to the front and center at Christmas. What they think is wrong with the world and what they wish was right again all comes together at Christmas. You still, are you still there? 
last week as we celebrated Christ the King, uh, Sunday, uh, it occurred to me that, that Advent is the beginning of the Christian year, but it's the middle of the Christian story. This is why the first passage that we read in Christ the King Sunday from Isaiah chapter 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Why? The first song that we sang was deliver us. From what? We start the Christian year in the middle of the story. If you want to know where the story begins for the people of God, it begins in the Old Testament. It begins in the story of Exodus and in the story of the prophets and in the Psalms. This is where we find ourselves beginning. And if we go back to the Old Testament, we find this, this circle of prophets who give us vivid descriptions of the first night before Christmas. And all is not calm and well. The prophets say to those living in the land of darkness, to those living in the long shadow of death, uh, prophet Micah says, night comes over them without vision, Darkness comes without revelation. The prophets describe a world that is shrouded in darkness on the night before Christmas. And then, <laughs> the news. The kingdom of God has come. So I went back and I started reading the prophets. I wanted, I wanted to know what was it like on the night before Christmas. And as I read the prophets, you guys, this is an entirely different advent than the one that, I, that you grew up seeing in Christmas pageants. If, if, if you read about Advent from the prophets, there are some striking differences. For starters, what they prophesy is not only a person, they prophesy a place. This is not only about a king, this is about a kingdom, about the way the world will look when the king is in charge of the world. The second thing that struck me is that all of these prophecies were not written to the world. They were written to the people of God. All of the things that churches believe covers the world. Darkness, chaos, confusion, anxiety, alienation. All of these things in the prophets are not said of the world they are said of us. So in the Old Testament, it's <laughs> Christmas is not a message that the world has or that the church has for the world. It's a message Yahweh has for the church. It was a huge change 
Third, the things that the prophets say are coming are not just religious in nature, they are political and social. Such that if you would read them today, they would sound like a manifesto of a new regime that was coming. These are strong words. Fourth, these things that the prophets say about the coming of Christmas are not in agenda, they're promises. They're not something the people of God, that's us, are supposed to make happen because every one of them is just way above our heads. We can't make these things happen. So the message of Christmas in the Old Testament isn't believe, it's remember. Wait. And hope. What people want on that first night before Christmas is not a holiday. They want a new king and a new kingdom because they're tired of the old one. And here's where I started thinking so are we. There is no prophet who captures this quite like the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the chapters in the book of Isaiah are sermons. They're better than mine, and they're shorter than mine. And the audience of Isaiah is not the world. The audience in Isaiah is us. So when we read the prophecies of Isaiah, the way he describes the world, we are actually looking into a mirror. Are you still there? So in chapter 11, that was just read a moment ago, this, this, this promise that there is coming a new king and a new kingdom. This king will have the spirit of Yahweh resting upon him and with righteousness he will judge the needy and with justice, he will give decisions to the poor. That is Isaiah's bold prediction about a king that is coming. But if you back up and read the first 10 chapters of Isaiah and, and just know as I did the kind of world he described before this person would arrive, it's like, it's like you're reading the New York Times. Listen to some of the language in this. Now, this is the part where you got to get, ner yeah, you're just going to have to, yeah. I went home and I started talking about this stuff and my family over Thanksgiving said, don't be so negative. <laughs> but, but listen to the way he describes the world. The people are loaded with guilt. Their children are given to corruption. 
he calls them a people with afflicted hearts. These are his words. Your cities are on fire and your fields are being strip mined by foreigners. The most vulnerable among you, that is the widows and the fatherless are oppressed because your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves who love bribes and chase after gifts and your laws are unjust. Your leaders write decrees, think executive orders that take advantage of vulnerable people. The violence in your cities is way up. Homicides and robberies abound. These are his words. Murderers dwell in your cities in the place where righteousness used to dwell. Your economy is wasting away. These are his words. Your silver is dross. Your wine is diluted with water. In other words, neither is worth what it used to be. You're quiet. You sound like my family. Now, odd thing is, all the while Israel is practicing these things, she remains devoutly religious. In fact, she is confident in her worship. She offers sacrifices. God does not see them. She regularly attends worship in the temple, but God does not know her. She celebrates holidays and festivals. She follows the liturgy, but God still opposes her. She prays, stretching forth her hands in the temple, but God does not listen. She practices her rituals, but they're deluded with superstitions. She is devoutly religious, but the land is full of Idols. You can feel the preacher, the preacher's tenor rising as he says this. He's starting to get red. Then he says in chapter 2, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for the proud and lofty. They will be humbled and the icons of culture will flee in terror to the caves and the splendor of God will rise and shake the earth. Now they're nervous because they've all invited their friends to hear the preacher and he's going off on them. And they're thinking, man, he needs to get positive. He needs to tell a story or my friend's never going to come back. But he keeps going. I'm paraphrasing him now. The day is coming, says Yahweh, when the noble and the valiant among you will no longer be your leaders. Instead, your boys will be your officials. Mere children will govern you. You will be so desperate that you will seize nearly anyone and make them your leader. People will oppress their friends and neighbors. The young will rise up against the old. Men will get up early and drink and stay up late until they're drunk. The women will dress themselves and give themselves to fools. They will pretend that darkness is light and that light is darkness. They'll call evil good and good evil. They'll be wise in their own eyes. And someone by now is saying, dude, just go to the benediction. Now here is where the preacher 
changes his tone because he has his audience while he has us where he wants us. You see, it was common in those days for people like it's common today in America for people to change dynasties every few years in hopes that they would get a good one. The problem in Isaiah's day was that you Old Testament people can go back and read the 10 or 12 kings. The problem is that every king who took the throne was soon compromised by the throne itself. They made all of these promises to the people and then the moment they became king, it's like another agenda took over them. Sometimes it was the system, sometimes it was the people's expectations, sometimes it was the nation's idols, sometimes it was the donors. But it's like people were fine until they got into the throne and then once the person got the throne, the throne itself corrupted them. Are you still there? So if you're Israel or America, what do you do when the temple and the throne are both compromised? What do you do when the two institutions God gave to stabilize your nation are themselves part of the dark night? When your shelter from the storm is the storm. What does a nation do when its prophets, its media, its pastors, chase after the king's agenda while the king is chasing after idols? What does a nation do when its temple is no longer relevant and its throne is divisive. You're still quiet. Hang in there. You can feel the tension in the room as Isaiah is preaching. And it's not a stretch to say that the same tension is in this room. This where the family said, oh, be quiet. <laughs> On my more cynical days, it feels like the temple and the throne are compromised. It feels like the temple is becoming uh, uh, more irrelevant and the throne is becoming more polarizing. And there's some of us in the room right now 
you've decided to just sort of go back to the corner and say, man, I'm just tired of the drama. I'm just going to do what I need to do. Others of you are thinking, you know what? I'm tired of the polar extremes. I'm ready to find the middle. I want to find a healthy compromise. But again, in my darker nights, I can't tell if that is compromise or if it's just fatigue. I can't tell if it's truly hope that we will somehow get this right or if it's really a passive form of despair. I truly don't know. I just know that I hear a lot of people say, I have said it myself, man, I wish we had better options. Then in chapter 11, the preacher goes in to the pulpit with a new vision of something nobody has heard. He sees what nobody can see. And he says, there is going to come from this dead stump a shoot. There will come life out of death. And that shoot, that person, that leader will have the spirit of almighty Yahweh upon him. And he will not judge by what is around him. He will judge by what is in him. He will not be swayed by polls and surveys. He will not reach for compromises. No, no, with justice and righteousness, he will rule the earth. Now you can feel the people of God in the middle of this sermon thinking, wow, this might end well. Then he gets halfway through his sermon in chapter 11 and he goes into a rhetorical loop like, you know, Martin Luther King when he did the whole, I have a dream, that's a rhetorical loop. Well, the prophet has one, but it's called in that day. And he's talking about that day when this king comes into power. Listen to his words. In that day, the king will stand as a banner for the people and the nations will rally to him. In that day, God will reach out his hand and reclaim the people who have been scattered, yet they belong to him. In that day, you will say, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. You will drink deep from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, shout and sing for joy. The Holy One is among us. Man, he finished in chapter 12 with a crescendo. The audience is on their feet. Shoot, I was on my feet. I listened to his language. He was describing a king that was born in this world, but was not of this world. The people said, Amen. That's the best Isaiah has ever been. Man, he was on his game today. And then they shuffled back to their routines.
and nothing changed. A few years later, another king came to power and they thought to themselves, it's an election year. Maybe now. And then it didn't happen. And then there was another one and another and another. Centuries. This went on for centuries. And the people begin to ask themselves, what is the difference between a promise that doesn't come true in my lifetime and a promise that just doesn't come true? Are you there? One day, a 14-year-old girl pledged to be married to an unemployed carpenter. Is doing the chores in her house when she turns around and sees man of God, Gabriel, Gabriel, man of God. She sees him. He introduces himself. He tells her she is favored. <laughs> She's terrified. When he tells her his name, she remembers the name. The only time Gabriel's mentioned outside of Luke 1 is in the prophecies of Daniel when he's describing the coming of a new king. Now she knows something is up. She is right. Gabriel proceeds to tell her that God is going to implant one in her body that is directly from God himself. You will give birth to a son and he will rule over a throne that God has given him. Mary knows that this is beyond her. She says, uh, there's some things you need to understand. She says, I've never been with a man. How can I give birth to a son? And the angel says, no, no. The spirit of the Lord will come upon you and the shadow of the most high will overshadow you and the one who comes out of you will be the son of God. Mary, something is about to happen that only God can do but you'll need to participate. Mary says, be it unto me as you have said. Well, she gets up immediately and runs to tell Elizabeth 
few miles away. She arrives, I can think anyway, in time for the birth of John the Baptist. She's there for the birth of John the Baptist, possibly. When Mary comes into Elizabeth's home, the baby inside of Elizabeth leaps for joy. I don't think that's ever happened. Where the child carried by one woman leaps for joy over the child carried by another woman. And when Mary hears this, she goes into a song called, do you know what it is? It's the Magnificat, named after the first word of the song, magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in Yahweh, my Savior. And as you read this song, it occurs to you, this is not a pretty song this is a revolution. This is the same thing the prophets have been predicting would happen. It's about to happen. And a few things strike you as you read Mary's song, as I know you will. We'll sing it in a moment. A few things strike you. One is that it's happening to the least deserving person in the world. The second is that it is God who is making this happen. It is not Mary. This is happening with her and in her, but it is not from her. The third is that everything that God said was going to happen has already happened. It's past tense. Read it again. All of the verbs occur in the aorist tense. These are not prophecies. These are promises that have already happened. And yet, when Mary goes outside and she looks around the empire, it occurs to her that nothing that the angel said was in fact true of society. How is it that the well-off and the powerful are brought down and the poor and despised are lifted up if Rome is still in charge? Then it occurred to me, there's two ways. One, is that the angel Mary is talking about a different kind of power and a different kind of wealth. I get that. We all know, do we not, that the humblest person in this room is also the most powerful? And we all know, do we not, that the pursuit of wealth actually robs one of happiness. It does not contribute to us. So maybe there is another kind of flourishing outside the definitions of Rome. But the real reason, I think, is this that the promises of God are like pregnancies. They don't come true 
The promises of God are already true on the day he utters them. Paul said in Romans 4, he speaks of things that are not as though they were. And because he said it, they happen. The promises of God are like pregnancies. When you get one, nobody around you knows you're pregnant. But you. And these promises never so much come true. They grow. They develop. They are formed. They are made in the waiting. And then one day, those promises are born. It is inevitable. So Mary, I need you to participate in the promise. I need you to take care of yourself. I need you to guard it, protect it, nourish it, and remind yourself Every advent is coming. Church, you are pregnant with the kingdom of God. You are carrying the kingdom of God. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you more stubborn, rebellious ones don't want to be pregnant. If you belong to the church, capital C, you are like Mary, the mother of the kingdom of God. Everything that people want from Christmas, you already have. You just forget that sometimes. So here's what I need you to do. Take care of yourself and be strong. And stay to the story that is your story. Stop defining your wealth and power by the standards of Rome. God has given you new power and wealth. Whatever you have. And live into that. Live now the way everybody will live. When the king comes home. <laughs> now my family said, keep going, keep going. I have to quit. I want to read over you 
words from Scripture, which I think are fitting for a church still carrying, waiting for the full birth of the kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads while I read to you the word of the Lord? In the words of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed by detectable signs. You won't be able to say, here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is among you. It is within you. For you have been born not of perishable but of imperishable seed by the living and enduring word of God. That word is the gospel that was preached and the gospel you obeyed. You are a chosen people. You are a holy mother. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. So I urge you to live according to your holy calling. Take care of yourself. Abstain from things that wage war against the soul and conduct yourselves honorably. Have a unity of spirit, sympathy, and love for one another. Have a tender heart and a humble mind so that even when the world accuses you or maligns you, They will see your good works and glorify God on the day the kingdom is born.